podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. And boom, we're on. And today's guest, we've got Chad Tower. Chad, how are you, brother? Uh, pretty good. I'd say better than average, considering my situation. Yeah, it's quite dark and I don't know what's that. I watched a lot of your stuff on TikTok, and then I came across you on Instagram. You're in the FBI's wanted list, Interpol, for your missing son, who they say you've kidnapped, and people saying you've killed. And it's it's kind it's a messy story, but no doubt you'll be here today to clear it up. Have you been on the wanted list since 2009? Is that correct? I guess it depends on how you look at it, either 2006 or 2009. So they indicted me in 2009 in a secret closed-door court hearing, but they say that I kidnapped him since 2006. So have I been wanted since he was kidnapped or just since they indicted me? Before we get into everything, no, Chad, I always like to go back to the start with my guests, get a bit of understanding about you, where you grew up, and how it all began. Mm-hmm. Well, I grew up in uh, northwest Pennsylvania, and as we discussed, actually a town called Edinburgh which is a small town and sister city of Edinburgh, Scotland, and also Erie, which is a nearby city. Um, but I left Pennsylvania in 1994. We moved to Tennessee. And so my son was born in Tennessee. He grew up in Tennessee, and it's the only place my son ever knew until a judge sent him to live overseas with me because I moved to Europe in 2001. And um, I worked for Microsoft. I had a senior position at Microsoft, and the FBI completely and utterly destroyed my career, my health, and my finances on false charges of which they knew were false. This is not a mistake. This is a clear case of framing. Uh, we have, I mean, we have all the court documents proving that they knew what they were doing when they were doing all this. What about your upbringing, Chad? Like, what were you like at school and stuff? Oh, wow. That's a, <laughs> well, I'm autistic, but I didn't learn that until a year or two ago. Um, what they used to call Asperger's. And so that explains a lot during my growing up. But um, during school, yeah, it was, it was challenging because I didn't really fit in. And um, I was always ahead of my other peers. And in some cases, I, I was out doing the teachers. And some teachers were okay with that. And some teachers did not take very kindly to that. So by the time I got to high school, they sent me to a private school. And we were next to an affiliated with a college. So I ended up having three years of college done before I left high school. What about your mom and dad? Did you have a big family or was it a small family? Yeah, I know a Catholic family, so a big family. <laughs> I have, well, of the ones that I grew up with, there are, well, I grew up with four other brothers and sisters, and then my mom had another brother after I left, and then I have a half brother on the other side, so it depends how you count them, but I have between five, I have between, let's say, five to eight brothers and sisters. My growing up was a whole story in itself. We can make a whole series of stories just out of that. My mom my mom is blind so that obviously made for some interesting child rearing um my dad oh my dad was a whole nother story um that that's a whole nother saga that um <laughs> well, i don't even know how to go into that shortly but i did not have a usual upbringing at all and we were we were pretty poor to to when we were growing up as well so um you know we had like we didn't have heat in our house because, you know, the money. And so my dad actually bought a barn heater. I don't know if you ever seen these big torpedo heaters where you light for kerosene to keep the cows warm. We had one of those in our living room. And the funny thing is my brothers and sisters didn't know any different because when I was the only child, we didn't have a lot of money, but I knew what things were. And my brother one time told me, this is when he was in his 20s. 
He's like, you know, until I got out of the house when I was 18, I didn't realize that everybody didn't have the barn heaters in their living room. I thought that's how everybody heated their house. And so we just, yeah, it, it was a very, um, my dad was known as kind of the, um, the crazy man of the town. And so, you know, we, we had a lot of conflicts with police and the neighbors and yeah, it was a very interesting program. I mean, one time he got mad at the neighbors and so he painted that side of our house fluorescent pink. Just to piss them off. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you've not had it easy then from a childhood kind of, yeah, whole oh, no. life's kind of been messy <laughs> since the day you're fucking born then, Chad, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You could say that. Uh-huh. When did you eventually leave your household and get out and get a job? What age? Oh gosh. Well, let's see. I, I left when I was about 14. I moved with, I moved with my grandmother. And then when I was 17, the whole thing really blew up. My, my parents finally got divorced and I ended up living completely on my own at 17 while I was still in high school. So in the last few months of high school, I ended up moving 300 miles away to a completely different city, a city I'd never lived in before and barely knew anybody. I knew one or two, I knew one person there. And I was working at a restaurant at night and going to high school during the day uh, because I was living on my own. So you eventually get out, started living with parents, started getting a job. So when did you start working with Microsoft? Uh, well, I started with Microsoft in 2004. Um, so I would have been 20, 26, um, no, 2004. Sorry, I would have been 29 or 30 at that point. But I was already big and known at that point because Microsoft targeted me. I, I did not go to Microsoft. In fact, I had no desire to work for Microsoft. I kept turning them down and they just kept coming after me. And after a while, one of the guys at Microsoft is like, listen, you keep turning Microsoft down, but you should really look at what they're offering you. And I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll give it a chance. And they were offering me a lot. It was a senior position to a lot of money. And I was already making a lot of money. So from the mid-90s, I was already an international conference speaker, and I was already working for large Silicon Valley and international companies. Um, but by 2004, Microsoft basically poached me. I was on a target list among other people. When I got inside Microsoft, I searched my name on the internal network, and I found myself on a target list. So how does Microsoft approach you? Well, what kind of skills do you need to have for them to be poached and given a job there? Well, I, my background was software development and public speaking. And so um, in my case, it's, it's a bit unique. They do target people from time to time, but I was already an international conference speaker. So I was speaking at technical conferences several times a year all throughout the world. Well, at that point, mostly Europe and the US. It was afterward that I started speaking uh, in Asia and Africa and Middle East and so forth. But at that point, I was already, uh, I was already a headline conference speaker. So I, I was very well known within the industry. So your life's... Was it pretty normal then? Were you thinking you're making a bit of money? You're away from your parents? Did everything seem good? Was that a good point of your life? Uh, well, mostly when when I was with my first wife, um, that's a whole other thing there. But my first wife and I, who I who I affectionately call Vecna to protect her privacy, um, it, it we didn't fight anything, but we we were really more like friends. It was really a platonic type relationship. And since I was traveling a lot, that's probably the only thing that let that marriage go so long. But career wise, yeah, I mean, I I was doing well. I wasn't really stressed about things. And then when we finally separated, you know, she turned into a total nightmare. And uh, that that's where things got crazy. Yeah, because it's when I talk about messy, it is messy like to be on the FBI's wanted list, Interpol, 
He ended up in prison in Bulgaria. So what happened when, when this relationship started to end? What was it like? Was there good was there good times in this relationship at any point? Or was it always mm. toxic? No, it, it, you know, it wasn't toxic, but it wasn't really tight either. We were we got married at 19 or 20. I, I think we were 20, 20 got married. And it was just originally at that point, it was kind of a, a low point in my life. And I just, I had met her and we hung out and it was a marriage that should have just never happened. And it, it looks like probably what happened is she just wanted kids. So she hooked up with me and she's like, okay, I'll get kids off this dude. And so we got married and had a kid. And then I provided for her because I was making a six figure income in the nineties. And she was all happy with that. But we, we were never really much more than friends. Um, it was a very platonic relationship. I mean, we would go hiking and we got along, but I, I was gone a lot. I would, I would be gone for a week and home for, so typically when I was traveling, I'd be gone for five or six days and home for nine, gone for five or six, home for nine. So I was home and there with, you know, with our son and sort of thing, but she and I was just, it was always sort of a platonic relationship. And when we decided to end it, I thought it was going to be amicable and I was actually really nice. I mean, I gave her a lot of alimony. I gave her the house. I gave her one of the cars, which was in good shape, relatively, you know, a few, it was several years old, but it wasn't like a, a junker and it wasn't seriously old. It ran. And I, you know, I supplied everything so she'd have uh, for our son. And she just, I mean, just right away, just turned into basically destroying my life and making sure that I could never see my son again. She would interfere immediately with the visitation. And she started lying with the courts and then she kidnapped him and disappeared and we couldn't find him at all. And we had to go through that whole rigmarole. And that's how I ended up with full custody because she took off with him. What was it like when you had your son? Well, when I finally got him, I got custody in 2004. I mean, every, everything was good, um, except for the fact that she would hide even when I had him. So he would try and call her and her phone would be disconnected. Um, we would try and reach out to her for about visitation. And we couldn't find her. And then she would pretend like, you know, I was the one hiding him, but we couldn't find her at all. And she kept moving over and over and over. And she just did everything she could to, you know, just interfere with not only my visitation, but her own visitation. So then she could blame it on me for not sending him to wherever she was. But I didn't know where she was because she just disappeared all the time. So she's taking the kid, kidnapping him then. she she got severe mental health issues or? Yes. Yeah. Like, uh, in well, fact, it ruins in her family. I'm not going to really diss her family much because I, when we got married, I lived with her family and I, I respect her brothers and sisters, but she has one sibling that's in a mental facility. She has another sibling that was in prison, but is out now. And she has another prison, another sibling that is in prison. So yeah, there's some mental illness within the family, a history of it. So when she's taking your son and kidnapping him and you're not getting any rights to see him, What's going through your mind then? Were you, did you do everything you can to try and find your son? Or was it a case of it's too much, just try and live your life? No, I had to go find him. So we, we suspected they were probably within Pennsylvania, Ohio, New York. But those are pretty those are pretty large states. Each of those states is larger than a lot of European countries. And so I had to fly back to the U.S. in 2004 and find him, spend a lot of money calling around to schools to find out where he was. And we finally located him through school records. And then we had to get the courts involved. And it was just a big, horrible mess. And... The end result was that the judge transferred custody, full custody to me and ordered the child to move overseas to Europe with me. Because by that point, I was already I was already living overseas for three years at that point. And so the judge sent him overseas to live with me. And then one summer in 2006, I sent him back for summer visitation with her so he could go see her in the summer. And at the end of the summer, she didn't want to return him. And so she went to the judge and filed a bunch of malicious stuff. Like she says, Europe is a dangerous place to live. Yeah, I'm not joking. That's in the filing. And so 
Um, the judge says, no, you have to give him back. She says, I'm not going to do it. So the judge had police remove him from her for the second time, put him on a plane, send him back to Europe. And then uh, almost exactly two months later, the same judge charged me with kidnapping him because she said I came in the house and took him out. But I wasn't even in the country at the time and I had full custody. And the last time he was in the US, the judge removed him. How hard has that been on your son? Like going through all that, getting on planes and mom kidnapping him, people saying your, your dad's kidnapping you. Like, how hard did that must be on your son? How oh, it, old was he when this was happening? When Well, when that first happened, he was um, he was 10 at that point. And it's it's been horrible because they listed him on the internet as a missing child and he's going to school and the kids have approached him even here like, do you know you're missing? And he's like, yeah, I know. And uh, the FBI, at one point, they coordinated an attempted abduction attempt. In 2009, they tried to abduct him from the Caribbean. And I know how crazy that sounds, but I have court records of that. And a member of the U.S. Embassy was expelled over that attempt by the attorney general here. And my son has talked about it in his news interviews because he was 13 and he remembers it. So when, when did it first come about that you had a warrant out for your arrest? Well, in 2009, in May 2009, they went behind, they went to a secret closed door court hearing of which almost no countries in the world have these anymore, except for terrorists and things. And they indicted me by fraudulently altering his birthplace. Yeah, they fraudulently altered his birthplace and charged me with kidnapping in a secret closed door hearing. And I didn't know anything about this because normally, at least, you know, with Trump, for example, they told everybody, you know, everybody knew he was going to be indicted. They talked to his lawyers, talked to him. Me, they didn't even talk to my lawyers. They just indicted me in secret. And then they issued an Interpol red notice, and I had no idea. So I went to Bulgaria on a, to speak at a conference, and I got arrested by five inter armed Interpol agents and spent time in five Bulgarian prisons while my extradition procedure went through and was eventually denied. So they tried to extradite me three times from multiple countries. What was it like in Bulgaria prison? Oh, it was bad. I mean, there were roaches. There was no heat. There was very little food. There was no toilet paper. There were four of us stuffed in a room designed for two uh, nobody spoke English, not the guards, nor the, the other prisoners. And so, yeah, it was rough. I have a whole Interpol arrest play series on TikTok, and I've been doing some podcasts about that too, but it was, conditions were rough. Did they know what your charges were in there? Bulgarian yeah, prison? but they didn't believe them. In fact, in, um, no, what I said, they didn't speak English, but they did speak Russian. Um, older Bulgarians tend to speak Russian. And I was in a foreign wing of the prison, and they put me in with prisoners who all spoke Russian, and I speak Russian. So I got by on Russian. But the guards, um, they knew what the charges were, but nobody believed it because they're like, there's no way the Americans would go so hard on somebody, especially on one of their own for something. So the guards nicknamed me the American Taliban. Was it scary? Did you ever fear for your life in those, those sort of prisons? No, because, you know, despite all that, and that was what I feared about when I went in, but the guards were all very friendly. Um, they would even joke around with you and they tried to help out as they could because they knew how bad the conditions were. And we were basically on lockdown. So I never saw any other prisoners other than the three in my cell, except when I was being transferred to other prisons, to the courthouse or some of the passing in the hall. Um, so we never had really an opportunity to, to get into any trouble except for the people in our room. And the three guys in our room were pretty cool, pretty cool and chilled dudes. So, so you're in the, on the news, you're on, in the newspapers and you kidnapped your son. But you've been with your son. So how, how has that all come about? Like, what what's happened? Have you, have you ruffled feathers somewhere? What have you done to, for it to go this extreme? Yeah, I know. It's, that's a number one question. Before we get to that, I just want a little bit of background information. So, for example, if you go to the FBI website right now, the FBI website says, I'm a former Titusville man. 
I have never lived in the city of Titusville in my life. I've never even spent a single night in Titusville in my life. That's from my ex-wife ran off to when she kidnapped our son. It's even in a different state. So the FBI can't even get my hometown right. And then they also, in the indictment on the website, it says I just retained my son. But the actual FBI indictment says that I removed him. I physically removed him in November 2006. But the problem was I wasn't even in the United States in November 2006. And in the same indictment, the FBI says I removed him November 6, 2006. But in the same indictment, they say I wasn't even in the U.S. at the time. So it's nuts. And they fraudulently altered his birth state to be Pennsylvania instead of Tennessee so they could issue a temporary order and, and get in the middle of, of uh, jurisdiction. They also issued a temporary order with no expiration date, which is illegal. So they did a whole bunch of stuff. So I wanna, what I'm trying to drive home here is this is not a mistake. They knew what they were doing to me. So your question is, why did they all do this to me? Why did they frame me? There are a lot of theories. Let me start off. Let me give you three theories, okay? One theory is they just wanted to make headlines and somebody was looking to make their career. Now, that is a good theory, and it's a simplest theory, and I typically subscribe to Occam's Razor. The simplest solution is usually the actual solution. But in this case, if you look at how many people have been involved in my case, and I have emails and court documents that involve dozens of people within the Department of Justice and the FBI, okay? And that's just what I have. So for that many people to be involved and continue to back this up, even though it's very clear that he, you know, he's 27 now, <laughs> and he's been on the news saying he was never kidnapped and so forth. So it's too much for this just to be one dude just trying to make, make us think about this. The other option was that the FBI agent that was on my case, he previously had a higher position in the state of Maryland and then somehow got transferred to a branch office in Pennsylvania in a smaller city. So it doesn't make any sense because he moved to a city that nobody would purposely move to unless you have a really good job offer or you have family or something from that area. It's not, it's an area, it's a very depressed area. It's like, it's an old steel mill town and that sort of stuff. And it's lost like 30% of its population last 20 years. It's one of the poorest, they have some of the poorest zip codes in the entire United States. You don't move there unless you have a reason. So why did this guy go from a high position to a low position in the middle of nowhere? We suspect that he may have been demoted for something he did. And he's like, well, I got to build my career back up. So there's this crazy lady willing to lie. Let's run with it. But even then you would think somebody would step in at some point. So the third theory, and here's, and, and I know this sounds really, really wild, but give me a second here, okay? So I lived in, or I lived in Russia in the early 2000s, and when I worked for Microsoft, I traveled all throughout the Middle East and Africa, a territory of 85 countries, and I was approached by at least three foreign intelligence agencies who tried to recruit me, and so generally, when you're trying to do that sort of thing, it's much easier to recruit somebody who already has a cover than it is to build a cover for somebody you've recruited. And if you read books by former CIA agents and things, they talk about this all the time, recruiting agents. There's a recruiter agent, there's a former CIA recruiter on TikTok, and she's talked about this. So I was traveling with ease in and out of countries that other people couldn't because of my Microsoft business card and that sort of stuff. And so I know that those three agencies tried to recruit me. And I could never figure out exactly why, and I just thought, okay, they wanted to travel. But also I was swatted by the US Embassy in Cyprus in 2002. And I started getting problems with the TSA when I go to the US. I was picked up by a European agency one time and questioned. When I was in Russia, I was in the KGB watch list. And yeah, I know they're called the FSB, but few Westerners know that. It's just basically they got renamed in 1991, but it's still the KGB. So I had been picked up and questioned by the KGB when I was in Russia, and I was in their watch list, and I knew this. And it seems that potentially some CIA recruitment agent in some sort of, you know, wet dream when they were smoking something 
thought that I had access to Russian military secrets and that they are after me for that and that they wanted to get me into custody and then basically say, listen, you turned down all those offers from our partners because the three recruitment, three agents that tried to recruit me were all close U.S. allies. And so the working theory is that they were trying to get me into custody and say, listen, we want you to work for us. You have access to these Russian secrets. Uh, we want you to get them and we'll let you out of prison. And they have done stuff like that before. There is documented cases of the CIA doing things like that to people. Now, how would I have access to these Russian secrets? I know that's the next question. So let's just jump into that. I remarried in 2002. I remarried a Russian citizen and her parents uh, worked for the Russian government and did have direct access to um, Russian military plane information, high level stuff. So that's why I was in the KGB FSB watch list because I lived in a town that used to be closed to foreigners. I've been on the factory grounds where they make Russian planes. I've been up close enough to basically spit at a Russian fighter plane. Um, that's how close I've been to them. And I could never get any of that information. I was never going to turn on my wife's parents. They were never going to give me any information. That was never even on the table. But it seems like some CIA recruiting officer in some sort of wet dream thought that maybe I could and they were trying to turn me. It just seems all a bit crazy for yeah. your missus to crazy, be there. But of those theories, the thing is that third one's actually the most probable. And that's the really strange part is because for the dozens, if not, there's probably hundreds of people, but I mean, I just the documents alone, I have dozens of people's names that are involved in my case in the Department of Justice FBI. So that third solution is actually the most probable, as crazy as it sounds, because can you name anyone else? The U.S. has tried, failed and tried, sorry, tried and failed to extradite somebody three times from multiple countries and as well as abductions and still continue to chase them 17 years later? It makes no sense, does it? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking all for... Because your son's been on news, your son's been telling his story to say that he wasn't kidnapped, but yet, is your, still, is your son still not on the missing list? Is he not, or else it got took off last year because of a TikTok video, is that correct? Yeah, in fact, the National Center for Missing Children, they repeatedly told us they would never remove him without a quarter, even when he would contact him. He's like, listen, I'm 25 years old. I'm an adult for seven years. I am not missing. Remove me. And they would reply back. And I have these emails from the legal counsel of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children saying we cannot remove him without a court order. And we had lawyers. We had all kinds of people. Them, they wouldn't do it. And then I did a viral TikTok in 2022. And I tagged the Nick Mick account on TikTok. And within 24 hours, not only did they block me on TikTok, but his poster disappeared off the internet within 24 hours. What was going through your mind then when you're on the, the, the FBI wanted list and Interpol and they're trying to extradite you? If you're in your mind and everything you've seen is, is correct, and how, do you ever fear, fear for your life then? If no. you're talking CIA, you're talking FBI, you're talking Interpol, do you ever? Yeah, I don't, well, the only way I fear for my life is I have a very serious medical condition and they're currently denying me medical care. So I'm slowly and painfully dying already for lack of medical care. I'm on an island in the Caribbean of just 35,000 people that is physically only 50% larger than Disney World. Our hospital here is extremely basic to say the least. And they cannot provide the surgical uh, procedure that I need here. And I need to travel, but I can't because of the Interpol red notice. And the FBI knows my medical condition. We have offered to go to trial, but the FBI blocks going to trial. So they won't even allow me to go to trial and they won't allow me to get medical care. So the only thing I fear is dying for lack of medical care. They won't outright take me out because they don't have to. They just have to wait for me to die here. So if you haven't done anything wrong, why don't you go back and face everything that they're saying? They won't allow me to. They've revoked my U.S. passport. They won't allow me to travel to the United States. 
I need an air ambulance at this point to go anywhere because my medical condition is so bad. Last year, we finally forced a petition before the court, and we've been offering for years, And this, but I have all the transcripts in this one. We offered to go to trial subject to two conditions. One, they either allow me to receive medical care or provide it for me. And two, they don't delay the trial. They give me a trial within, within the 70-day statute. And they said no. So if they have such hard evidence against me, first of all, why can't they extradite me from any country? Why do the courts keep turning them down? And two, isn't 17 years enough to prepare to go to a trial? Why are they afraid to go to trial? Now, in the U.S., they can hold you five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years without a trial. And so it looks, you know, they just want to hold me without a trial. They will never bring this to trial because if, if you were the FBI and the prosecutor, can you imagine walking in front of a judge and jury and trying to explain why you fraudulently forged the child's birth state, why you lied about where I'm from and why you lied about where I was in November 2006? They're never going to walk in front of a judge and admit that. What is it they're saying you've actually done? They said that I actually physically kidnapped him November 6, 2006 and removed him from the country. But the thing is, I wasn't even there. And just two months prior, the same judge had removed him on his own. That judge removed him. And is your son, is he in favor of you now? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've seen his news interviews. He's made it very clear that, you know, he wants all this to stop. And he lived with us till he was 25. And then, you know, when he was 25, he decided to get a place nearby, which is cool. I mean, he was 25, so. So where do you go with it all now? Like, what, what's your plans? If you say you're dying and you can't leave the country, you can't go back to America, what do you do then? Do you just stay where you are and die or do you try Publicity. and clear everything? I'm on the offensive. The only thing that clears up cases like this with the FBI <clears throat> is when you shine enough light on them. Look what the FBI did to the US Women's Olympic team with Larry Nassar. They cut the FBI covered that up for a year. What they they covered up their cover up because basically they had the information about Larry Nasser and the FBI didn't act on it. And then they sat on it for another year and it took an independent journalist in Indiana to go after the FBI. And when that happened, the head of the FBI in Indiana was was uh, fired. And the U.S. Women's Olympic team is now suing the FBI for one billion dollars. That's American billion because if I remember, British and American billions are different. But it's basically it's a thousand American millions. What's your lawyer saying to oh? Well, our lawyer's been trying to get all this stuff, but every time we file anything in court, the FBI blocks it by saying I'm a fugitive. They say, I can't file anything because I'm a fugitive. I can't file FOIA requests because I'm a fugitive. They just block everything they can. And so even our lawyers are completely exhausted. And my lawyer is a former district. He's a former uh, prosecutor himself. So he knows the system, but they can't get anywhere because the FBI is in an active cover-up right now. And I know that sounds crazy, but they call journalists and tell them they can't talk to me because it'd be aiding and abetting. And that's pure and utter bullcrap. Because journalists talk to Assange and Snowden all the time, but it's enough to scare off most journalists. And so I'm here for publicity. I'm here to get my story out. And I always make the joke that by the time I'm going to done, by the time I'm done with them, they're going to have to rename themselves just to the BI because I'm going to knock the ever living F out of them. What would happen if they extradited you now? Would you go straight to prison? Yeah, basically what they would do is they would put me straight into a prison. And um, in the U.S., they can even deny you, they can deny you medical care. The court, U.S. courts have ruled that prisons are not obligated to keep prisoners alive. And there are several former prisoners on TikTok have talked about, like Jesse talked about how his prison didn't have a dentist for five years and the prisoners had to pull each other's teeth. And people die in U.S. prisons all the time for lack of health care, especially in my condition. So, yeah, I'd sit in prison and they can hold me in prison for many, many years without a trial trying to force me into a plea bargain. And I know many people they've done that to personally, as well as documented cases. Are you worried about that, that if they did extradite you, that you could possibly die in prison? Yeah, they can't extradite me, though. They, they cannot extradite me. They've already tried to extradite me from here. The courts have already turned them down. 
and they all they tried to abduct my son from here. So remember this, I'm going to be expelled over that. Uh, they they cannot legally get me from here. When was the last time you you spoke to your wife, your ex-wife? Um, 2000, 2002, because if I even send her so much of the postcard, she'll file in court that I'm saying I'm stalking and harassing her. So I only communicate with her through my lawyers, but my lawyers physically showed up at her house last year. And we've and been in court. We've been in court last year, 2021 and 2022. We've been in court again. And this has been going on for nearly 20 years. Yeah. Is the stress with this part of your medical condition just now, do you think? No, I have stress from my medical condition because I'm in trauma levels of pain pretty much every day. I only leave the house. Last year, I only left the house like five times the entire year. Um, two days ago, I could barely walk. Most of 2021 and 2022, I could barely talk. So my medical condition is very severe. I had been passed out to the hospital here a few times. They've had to revive me. Um, so no, my stress doesn't cause my medical condition. My medical condition is what causes my stress. So how do you resolve it all then, Chad? We get as much publicity as we can. <clears throat> I keep climbing the podcast ladder until I get enough. And then the, when this really becomes public pressure, the prosecutor will dismiss this very quickly. And he can, and he's had opportunities, but he continues to refuse to dismiss it because he wants to cover up what he did. Because when this comes out, he's going to lose his job. He could be charged with prosecutorial misconduct. And the FBI is going to be open to civil liability that I can sue them for millions of dollars. And what's your son saying to it now? Well, my son did those news interviews and then he got massive attention. Um, we were already known here and everybody here already knew he was, quote, kidnapped and everything because, you know, the, the big deals have been here. But he, he got so much attention after that. They went viral here in the Caribbean, got millions and millions of views. <clears throat> so he's sick of being recognized. So he's... Um, He's changed his hairstyle and that kind of stuff, and he's taken some other measures, and he's just basically trying not to be recognized anymore. Hey, do you look over your shoulder? You said you've not been out the house much, but when you're out, do you get paranoid? Or do you, no, because and... I know they can't touch me here, and I know they're not going to come back and try another abduction, because when they tried the last abduction, a member of the U.S. Embassy was expelled, and the Attorney General told them, if you come back regarding Mr. Howard, you're going to see the inside of a Caribbean prison. So they made it very clear, if you have other fugitives, we'll talk to you. But with regarding to Mr. Howard, you should never come back here and never waste our time again. So they've tried to extradite you from something in 2016 for a kidnapping that your son has says publicly you've never done. It just seems all crazy. It just seems like you say CIA, FBI, for what? Now for you understand why the third theory sounds more plausible than the other ones, right? How deep were you in Microsoft? I had a senior position. Um, so I had a very senior position with my dream job. I had a territory of 85 countries. I was a worldwide regional director. I was a regional developer advisor. I mean, I, it was a senior position. It was my absolute dream job. And had I still been there, all of my peers now are basically at the vice president levels. So I, I would have easily been too. It was a very serious career. I mean, I loved that job. How dark does it go when you're at those sort of levels though? With the information that you have, is it secretive? Are you talking? No, not not from my job at Microsoft. I don't believe any of this is ever related to my actual job at Microsoft. But remember, with Microsoft, I traveled in and out of Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, all kinds of places with ease. Um, I once got within 50 miles of Osama bin Laden when I was in Pakistan. I didn't know it at the time. But when they found him, I was like, oh, yeah, I was pretty close to that spot. 
So I've had a lot of interesting things. And if it's related to Microsoft at all, it was just my ability to travel with ease because there were times I'd go to a country and they, would, they wouldn't let me in because of some bureaucratic thing. And I'd make a phone call and Microsoft would make a phone call and they'd get a Department of Justice involved and I got in the country. One time I got snuck into Saudi Arabia by the Saudi royal family because my visa had a bureaucratic mistake on it. So Microsoft basically has got a lot of pull. Is Microsoft oh, yeah. Is, yeah, there is were pull? several times that I, you know, one time an ambassador denied my visa on a technical, on just some technical thing. And I made a phone call and I was standing right there in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of his own country, called the ambassador up and said, that dude works for Microsoft. Stop pissing around with him and give him his visa. Who has Microsoft again? Is it Bill Gates? Well, Bill Gates is retired now. I, I don't, I think it was Satya Nadala for a while. I, I haven't followed who's who's the current head of Microsoft right now, but Bill Gates stepped down a number of years ago. Yeah. But who was the head when big... I was there? Yeah, when I was there, he was still still the head. But these big corporations, they're, they're next level. They control some of them. They've got that much money. They control what goes on in this world. Yeah, but I don't think this has anything to do with Microsoft itself. I never saw anything but good when I was at Microsoft. They they treated me very well. I would absolutely go work for them again. I would have stayed there for a very long time and finished out my career. So I don't think anything, it has anything to do with it. It has to do with my time in Russia and you know that plus my cover as Microsoft because I was able to travel places that other people couldn't. Yeah, especially being close to Bin Laden, traveling in a lot of countries where there were a lot of question marks. People may, might think you have information or might think you're a spy. So yeah, in much. fact, when um, when they interrogated me in Bulgaria, they were all over like, oh, look at your trips to Pakistan. And I mean, they, they, the U.S. Embassy and the FBI guy was all over that stuff, my Pakistan trips and Saudi trips and, you know, Oman and just all these places. Because, I mean, I didn't, go, I didn't go to Pakistan like once. I was in Pakistan like, I don't know, six, seven, maybe 10 times. And I've been all over Pakistan. I've been to Islamabad, uh, near Kashmir. I've been to Karachi, Lahore. Saudi Arabia, I've been all over too. The same thing. I've been to Saudi Arabia, you know, quite a few times. Saudi See, Arabia, because Saudi Arabia is one of the few countries that, the you know, most countries, the more often you go there, the more the the easier it is to get the visas, right? Saudi is the opposite. The more, at least now, maybe it's it's opened up a bit now, but back in the mid two thousands, the more you went to Saudi, the harder it was to get the visas because they're like, no one wants to come to Saudi. No one comes here for vacation. Why do you keep coming here? Yeah, but I had multi-entry so visas. I had multi-entry visas to Saudi, which at the time they handed out to almost nobody. See when they eventually caught up with you, Chad. What were you thinking then, and Bulgaria? Uh -huh. Well, you know, I've had such a strange and interesting life that when it did happen, I was kind of—I mean, I was surprised, but um, I don't think I was shocked. I've just—I've. I've had so many things in my life and so many interesting places I've traveled and so many things I've I've been near and entangled with that it just it didn't completely shock me, but it did surprise me. Yeah, to being through all that and then like you say, you're basically dying, you're still wanted on the FBI's list. But just all messy from the fucking dysfunctional family as I as growing up and then the toxic wife being on the news, being on the run, basically, to be then struggling to get healthcare. What do you think then, Chad, when you think about it, all, all the shit you've went through, all the shit you're dealing with now? You just have to deal with it. It's one step in front of the other. It's either that or give up. So, you know, when I first started my TikTok, I could barely talk. And so I had my daughter draw signs in crayon. <clears throat> I was holding up signs in crayon on TikTok. Those are my first TikToks. And I've just always been a person, and I, I put it down to probably the fact that I mentioned earlier that I'm autistic. I just, 
strong sense of justice and I will always just keep fighting until I can't anymore. And I'm going to fight this. And if I don't die first, then I'm going to win. But it's a very hard, often lonely struggle because it's so stressful on a lot of other people. A lot of people, they can't even handle the stress of the situation and they just short circuit. But I've got to keep fighting. I still, I have other kids too. I have two other kids that are still under 18. So I have to keep fighting. See, doing TikToks and podcasts, does that benefit you or is that a negative? No, the podcasts are a big help. I haven't done any tech talks in a number of years because I can't even program anymore. I can't sit up at the computer most days. My arms and hands hurt and shake so badly that I can't type. I can't program. My vision's often blurry. My my ears ring. So I've not been able to work in over 10 years. So since I got on TikTok about a year ago, yes, I've been doing podcasts and those sorts of things. And it is starting to get the word out. Uh, my podcasts that I'm on often get millions of views. On TikTok, I have over 70 million views. My Instagram right now, as of a week ago, is starting to blow up. I have several videos that are in the millions on Instagram now. And so it's just a matter of I need to get enough publicity. And if I can keep climbing the ladder, because these news agencies, I mean, most of them don't read their emails at all. You get a whole, you you think you call up a news agency. I'm wanted by the FBI and do an interview. You can't even get their attention. You could call up most of these news agencies. First of all, most of them, you can't talk to a human. If you're lucky, you'll get voicemail or an email. And you can send off, you could send off, at, you could send off actual proof that you have some sort of dirt on let's say Biden or Trump and you could even send them the proof and they would never reply back to you because they don't even look at the emails anymore the only way to get out of the news is somehow get big enough that some producer themselves actually notices your story and contacts you so that's why I keep going after bigger and bigger podcasts because my life's in the line and I need to get the story out there until we get big enough coverage that the FBI just dismisses the case and they do all the time 8% of all federal cases are dismissed outright and what happens if it does get dismissed, Chad? Where do you go with it? Well, if it gets dismissed, then they'll clear the Interpol red notice, and then I can be on an air ambulance to another Caribbean island, get my surgery, get better, and then somehow get back to work and making some money because our financial situation is absolutely disastrous at this point, I'm, me being out of work for over 10 years and still raising kids. So I need to do all of those and then get back to work. Um so at some point when this gets big, you know, write a book, get a Netflix special, and I'll go on speaking tour because when I worked for Microsoft, in addition to software development and architecture, I was speaking at the large conferences. So I was a tech ed track owner. I've spoken at multiple Microsoft tech eds. I regularly spoke in front of audiences anywhere ranging from 500 to 5,000 people. So I know how to do the, the publicity tour, but I need to get my health solved and, you know, do those sort of things. Because right now I can't even write a book because I have difficulty typing. I can usually type a few sentences at a time. That's about it. And that's why I've been re I started with TikTok is because I can just pick up the phone and start talking. I don't need to sit and write something or produce something really tight. And what happens if your case doesn't get dismissed? How long have you got to live without getting the medical treatment that you, you need? We don't know. The doctors are actually quite amazed that I'm still alive because I've been dealing with this. I mean, I pass hundreds of kidney stones a month. I passed a seven by seven by three millimeter kidney stone on my own. That thing almost killed me a bunch of times. And how long? It could be six days, six weeks, six weeks, six months, or six years, but it's all pain because the biggest, the two biggest risks are my kidneys completely failing, and I already have permanent kidney damage, or sepsis or kidney infection taking me out because I constantly battle kidney and urinary infections. My mom had a single two millimeter stone last year and ended up in the ICU with sepsis, and she almost died from a single two millimeter kidney stone, and I'm passing 100 per month. That's fucking crazy. So if you don't get dismissed, you need to go through all that. Potentially, you don't know how long you've got to live. 
What's the yep. best? What's the best thing in your interest to do then? The now just keep doing podcasts, try to keep raising awareness. Hopefully, it gets dismissed. But what if that doesn't happen? We have looked at a variety of alternatives. The problem is, for instance, Cuba has sent doctors to help me. So my condition has improved significantly since the Cuban doctors and the local doctors as well. But the Cuban doctors made some changes that really improved my situation significantly. But I still need the surgery, okay? But at least I'm up and talking and walking around most days. So we've looked at getting to Cuba. The problem is the charter companies don't want to fly a fugitive because their, air, their aircraft can be seized if they were found to be flying a fugitive. So, so far, I can't get a flight to Cuba because the, the charter companies won't fly me. But we're looking at a variety of options. Russia has offered me asylum. And as I said, I've lived in Russia. I speak Russian. My wife's family is Russian. We have family who will take me in right away. But I can't get to Russia because I need an air ambulance. I can't go very far. The air ambulances are expensive to begin with. So I can't even get to Cuba, let alone get to Russia. But we're, we, have a, we have some other plan Bs, but they're all pretty... Plan Bs are much more desperate and they involve a lot of money. And our money situation is very, very bad. So I can't go into too many details. So we're still trying to push for the publicity. But if it really gets down to it and my health continues, you know, it goes downhill again, we have some options, but they're very risky and they're very expensive. What about friends and family? Well, I mean, my wife and kids live with me here. Um, the rest of my, you know, like my brothers and sisters, my mom and stuff, they live in the US. I keep in touch with them. Um, they used to come prior to the pandemic. My family used to come down and visit all the time. But once the pandemic came up, our, our country responded kind of like New Zealand. Our borders were, were closed. It was a two-week quarantine in, two-week quarantine, sorry, two-week quarantine to get in for over a year. And so none of my family has come to visit since the pandemic. But prior to that, a lot of them, yeah, they came down and visited us. When you live in the Caribbean and you have an extra bed, you have all kinds of friends from high school and stuff who are happy to come visit you. Yeah, the Caribbean is beautiful. Yeah. yeah. How many places can you be? How many places is there where you can get extradited from America? Well, no place can actually extradite you. See, that's the thing. Well, the UK can. Because the UK and the US have a special treaty. And basically, yeah. if they ask for you, especially if you're an American, you go. Okay. But no other country in the world will actually extradite me. But what they will do is put me through the extradition procedure. So it's a repeat of Bulgaria. So let's say I get on a plane and I go to uh, Barbados or Jamaica or someplace. They're going to arrest me. They're going to hold me in their prison for months to years until the extradition procedure fails. And then they're just going to send me back home if I live through all of that. What's your wife saying about it? Oh, she worried. Does she worry about it? Oh, yeah. She, she, she's very, very worried, and she's extremely stressed about the situation, and she's, she's, she's have, having difficulty dealing with it. How I assume you think my current wife, not, not my crazy ex-wife. Yeah, yeah, no, I couldn't wait. How, yeah. how do you then get it resolved? How do you actually get it resolved? How do you Publicity. Actually... That's how these cases get dismissed. There are, if you go to a search engine and put in prosecutorial misconduct, You'll find actually a lot of cases. I mean, hundreds, if not thousands of cases where prosecutors were just basically going off the rails and they couldn't do anything in the court. They'd have lawyers, whatever. And then they got it into the press and the prosecutors dismissed the cases. This is how the U.S. system works. What's your run done in it all, Chad? Everything you've went through from the kidnappings to prisons to still being wanted to potentially dying without the right medical treatment because you might end up getting sent to prison in America. What's your whole rundown on it all? Like, why do you think it's happening to you? Why is it still going on? What do you think it's all about? Well, it's still going on because they're actively covering it up. I mean, they fabricated evidence. So they are running for their career lives, if you will. 
And as far as as they started it, as to why they started, I only have those three theories. And the most probable one is that they thought somebody thought I had access to Russian military secrets. And I kept turning down their uh, advances through their um, allies. And so they thought, well, this dude has this crazy custody case. Let's let's make a big deal out of it. Let's get him into custody. And once he's in U.S. custody, we'll tell him if he works for us, we'll let him out. And they do that all the time. And as again, if you read books written by former CIA agents, they detail things like that have happened. So it's not. That's actually the most plausible reason at this point. Do I have absolute proof? No. But why else? I mean, I have a court record showing that the FBI contacted the U.S. Embassy in Moscow and asked the KGB to come check on me. That's in a court record. There have been embassies, U.S. embassies in at least four countries that have been involved in trying to capture me. The U.S. Embassy in Moscow, plus the consulate in St. Petersburg, the U.S. Embassy in Cyprus, the U.S. Embassy in Bulgaria, and the U.S. Embassy in Barbados. And I have court documentation about all four of those embassies being involved. And this is all... From 2006, when they said you kidnapped your son? Uh, well, actually, the Cyprus embassy goes back farther. In 2002, the Cyprus embassy had our house swatted by the Cyprus police. And the Cyprus police had to apologize to us and basically ask us not to sue them. And that came from the U.S. embassy as well. And that's why I'm saying a lot of this other stuff goes back even farther. When I was picked up by the KGB in question, that was uh, back in 2001 to 2005. I got picked up uh, one time in Europe. Things have gotten so normal for me, I didn't even really think about it. And I don't remember which country it was because I traveled so much. I was in five or six countries a week often. But I think that was Germany one time when they when they pulled me aside in an airport and were asking me questions. And they're like, you know, they were asking me questions and I was really calm about it. And they were they seemed to be upset that I wasn't bothered. They're used to, the, the, the dude is literally like, you don't seem very nervous. Normally when we pick people up like this, they're sweating and you don't seem nervous at all. I'm like, yeah, because this happens to me all the time. And he's like, it does? And he, he said, yeah, I said, yeah. And he says, well, why? He says, well, to be honest, I can't really tell you too much, but do you know you're on the KGB and FBI watch list? And I'm like, yeah, I do know that. And then he's like, oh. And so I just explained to him why I was because, see, the thing is, I had a friend in, in that lived in D.C. and his wife was Russian and he worked for the NSA. Uh, is it the NSA? I think it was the NSA. It was some, some government agency. When he married his Russian wife, the FBI put her on a watch list. That's normal. If you have access to certain, if you have security clearance and you marry a foreigner, they're going to get put on a watch list. And I lived in Russia in a secret, in a, in a town that used to be closed to foreigners. And my wife's parents, both of them had direct access to Russian military secrets regarding military equipment, um, planes and things like that. So I was put, what they had to fill out a form. In fact, when we got engaged, uh, when I moved there, they had to fill out a form and tell the KGB that their daughter was engaged to a foreigner. So they knew exactly who I was. So that's how I got put on their watch list. But they never bothered me. They were always very friendly. And I'm not saying that's everybody's experience with the KGB. Okay, I never drank any tea, didn't take any water from them. But they would stop me coming in and out of going to Russia because they're coming in and going a lot. And one time they even picked me up from the airport. Um, and the, their questions were basically the same type of thing. They're like, uh, you know, they asked me a few questions. They're like, we're watching you. And I'm like, yeah, okay. And they were like, but you're not bothered. And I'm like, listen, I know what's going on here. You're not the first KGB agent I've had an encounter with. And I said, listen. I, I'm I'm married to this person. I'm not doing anything. I have nothing to fear. I understand why I'm on your watch list. It's standard procedure. I'm not here to give you any trouble. And they're like, okay, just know we're watching you. I'm like, bingo. And I, you know, it never went anywhere, but it seems that this stuff is just all connected because once I got on that watch list, what happened was other countries found out I was being watched by the Russian government, but they did not know why. And it just seemed that I got from one watch list to another watch list to another watch list. And the U.S. Embassy, clearly, they knew who my wife's parents were. They knew because we had interactions with the U.S. Embassy getting her visa 
and registering our marriage and that kind of stuff. And they fully knew who my wife was. They had a file on her. And also my wife is a Russian lawyer. So, um, you know, we had legal protections <laughs> in Russia, let's just say that. What evidence is there out there now that your son is alive, he's well, do you still have a good relationship? Well, I mean, he did, he did the news interviews, which are my news playlist. Since then, he's since he got recognized, you know, since it went millions, he's he's trying not to be recognized anymore. But uh, he was here two days ago. So I, I still can't get it through that your son's alive, he's well, but yet they're still trying to extradite you for kidnapping your son. Is it? What's the what's the time in prison for that? If you get if you got convicted. Three years, but the thing is, first of all, they'll never convict me because they're refusing to give me a trial. So they can hold me in prison for five or six years without a trial. But if they were to convict me three years, but then if they if they convict me, which they can't, then they can stick me on probation for another three to four years and stop me from leaving the United States. My wife's not a U.S. citizen, so they're never going to give her a visa. I have not lived in the U.S. in over 20 years. So even if I was out on pro where am I supposed to live? It's just, it's insane. But they, they will never take it to trial. And they can hold me in prison for five or six years or more there's a guy in Erie County that they held in prison for eight years without a trial. What's your lawyer saying to it all? My lawyers have exhausted every possible avenue on the legal front that they can think of, and they're former prosecutors, and they're okay with me going public. So where do you go forward for the future then, Chad, with everything you're going through? More podcasts. <clears throat> I need more people to contact more podcasters, because when I contact a podcaster, they think I'm just some crazy person, and I can't get enough of their attention for them to actually look at the documents once you look at my documents everybody's like holy crap you're telling the truth i'm like i know so i need people because to get a podcaster's attention i either have to get noticed directly by the podcaster or they need to get a whole lot of emails and contacts from other people from their listeners so everybody i'm very appreciative of you covering me but i need even more podcasts contact any big podcast you can think of to get me on what how can people contact you they can contact, if they go to the website, which is alexisnotmissing.com, all of my social media is linked there, and so is our Telegram group. So the best way to reach me is via the Telegram group, because since I have difficulty typing, I really prefer to send voice notes. I just pick up the phone, I, I, did, I did that with you. And then for interviews, I can do Zoom or WhatsApp or Telegram or Skype or you know whatever people, people choose. But the best way to reach me is Telegram via the website. And what's the best information for people to read up on? So a lot of people are, are skeptical. You, like you say, you might be crazy. You might be full of shit. And people like to do background checks to just verify everything and fact check everything that you're not. Some fucking crazy man hiding in his house somewhere, making up stories for views. How can people check everything that you're saying is legit? Well, if they go to the website, I have posted most of the important um, court document excerpts and things. If they go join a Telegram group, I can send them the full documents. You can Google me. You'll find newspaper articles and stuff on me. The thing is, you got to remember that a lot of the stuff the government put out about me is absolutely incorrect. I mean, the stuff on the FBI website, I'm not from Titusville. I was not in the United States, November 2006. And plus, what's on the FBI website does not actually match the indictment. Remember, the, the website says I just withheld him, which is not true either. And the, uh, the indictment actually says I physically kidnapped him. I mean, she disappeared. And you know, the judge removed him from the country. So how, how did I kidnap him the last time he was in the United States? A judge removed him, and then the same judge said I kidnapped him. Would your son ever come on and, and tell his story to say that he hasn't been kidnapped? On a Not podcast? anymore, because after he did, he did those news interviews, and um, he started getting contacted by so many people and got so much recognized that he he said he's, he's basically said everything he's had to say, he said in those news interviews, and he's not a public person. 
He's not like I am. I was a public speaker, but he's always been a very uh, private person, as you can imagine, because the FBI tried to abduct him and people, even kids at school. I mean, my, my daughter came home from school a couple of days ago and she's like, one of the kids two grades above me asked if my brother was missing. Saw you on TikTok. And several years ago, she got asked by one of the ambassadors, kid, if I was wanted by the FBI. And she's like, yep, my dad is. And the kid didn't believe her even then. And he went and asked his dad and he came back the next day. He's like, yeah, your dad is wanted by the FBI. Pretty cool. So my kids, even my young kids are dealing with this in school. I've been front page headlines down here numerous times. I mean, you could jump off the plane and it wouldn't take four or five people to ask where the American fugitive is and they would tell you. Like I say, if your son's ever want to come on and have his peace and spread more awareness and to just confirm that I'm alive, it's, I've not been kidnapped, I'm healthy, I'm fit. But what was the accusations made against you back then? Well, the accusations just were that I kidnapped him. That I, they say that physically, <clears throat> the indictment, actually said the indictments on my website the indictment says that in november 6 2006 i physically removed a child from the united states the problem is neither he or i was even in the united states at all at all and just two months prior the judge had the police remove him from his mother and send him overseas because she didn't want to return him at the end of summer visitation chad listen i hope you you do get it resolved hopefully it does get dismissed you get the medical help that you deserve and just kind of move on from it I, i can't imagine going through all that and how dark and heavy it plays in your mind, your wife's mind, the kids, because it's just like a, it's like a revolving door you're in just now. You're just going round in circles. It's twenty years, and it's the same shit. And like your few says, you're dying basically, and you're struggling for funds. It's sad to see someone struggle so much with those question marks over their head. Being on the wanted list, not really being able to do much about that. Would you like to finish up on anything, Chad, to to give more information or? I'm just basically begging for my life at this point. That's all I really am asking is I'm just begging for my life. And I know that when we get enough exposure, at some point, this is just going to catch fire and it's going to be everywhere. I mean, I'll end up with documentaries and so forth, but I really just want medical care. I want to save my life. I want to see my other two kids, you know, reach 18 and I want to get on with my life. Fair play, Chad. That's the the only thing you can really do in life is try and just get on with it and Hopefully tomorrow's a better day, but when you're on the fucking most wanted list in Interpol and can't leave the house because of your condition, it's sad affairs to be in, but you never know what the future holds. And what's your your social medias for anybody that's maybe want to get in contact, maybe want to help you? How did it get involved? Well, I'm on Instagram, YouTube, um, and TikTok and Twitter. And I'm the TikTok fugitive on all four of those. And if you want the direct links, because I don't have the same username, but that's the same description all of them, you can go to the website and all my socials are linked there. But if you just go to those places and search the TikTok fugitive, I should come up. Chad, listen, for coming on today and telling your story, it's been mad. Hopefully you get everything resolved for the future. Would you like to finish up on anything? Uh, I'll invite you here to the Caribbean. If you want to come here and go live, I'll, I'll, I will take as many painkillers as I need and we'll hobble down to the beach and we'll, we'll do a live on the beach. Yeah, definitely. Listen, I'm happy to have you back on at any time. So just keep me posted and updated everything's going on. And anything I can help my end, just let me know. Chat. Okay. Take care, mate. Stay safe. Speak to you Thank soon. Thank you so much. Bye. Podcast Network.